0: Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan.
1: Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah.
2: And I'm Aaron. And we've heard from a lot of you guys that after a concussion or acquired brain injury, you have some issues with vision. We, um, both Mariah and I, were fortunate enough to not have anything too life- altering when it came to our vision, so it's definitely an area we know nothing about. Um, we're very fortunate. Uh, Jackie Theis is a neurooptometrist who reached out to us um, wanting to be on the show and share more about her specialty. Um, she focuses on people with visual complaints and double vision after brain injury or any neurologic disease. She's nationally recognized as a leader in her field and helps with all the ocular motor dysfunction and prismatic correction of acquired and developmental double vision. I'm using words I don't understand. I know you so sound let's so turn fancy. This over now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> she is a great write up on her website. <laughs> so let's turn this over to Jackie, and she can explain a little more first about you know what neurooptometry is in the field and the fields and. Um everything vision. Yes. So welcome. Thanks Jackie.
3: for joining us, Jackie. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited today. So I think before I even get into neurooptometry, the biggest question I usually get is what's the difference between optometry and ophthalmology? Good question. So I think I'll start there. Uh, so ophthalmology and optometry are really symbiotic with each other. So an ophthalmologist is someone who goes to medical school and they learn a lot about or a little about a lot. Right, And then they decide they really like the eyes and they go into residency for three to seven years, depending on what residency they pick. And then they specialize in surgery and ocular disease management of the eyes. So those are MDs, ophthalmologists, and they can have specialties within like neuro-ophthalmology, for instance, which we'll go into in a little bit. Optometry is a different track. So in optometry, after your four years of college, you go to four years of optometry school. And unlike medical school, where you're learning a little bit about a lot you really learn a lot about the eye. And so we don't know everything about the kidney, but we know what about the kidney would impact the eye. And so it's kind of a different take on the education, which I think is really neat because we still knew a lot about the body and pertaining to the eye. And then after optometry school, some people go into primary care optometry and there's actually now residency tracks that are about one year to two years, depending, but mostly one year where you can specialize even further. And so, in optometry, you can specialize in contact lenses or pediatrics or neurooptometry. So, I did my residency at UC Berkeley in neurooptometry. And in particular, I really wanted to work with patients who had atypical visual complaints. So, the ones where you already saw an eye doctor and they told you your eyeballs were normal, but you don't feel normal. Those were the patients I really wanted to see. And they're very common after a head injury or after a subtle. Kind of development of progressive neurological disease. So a lot of patients with progressive supranuclear palsy or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis can have a lot of eye movement problems. The difference between neuro-ophthalmology and neuro-optometry is neuro-ophthalmologists are surgeons and medical doctors, and sometimes you really need them, right? So sometimes you're you let's say after a brain injury, one eye is pointed completely upwards and the other one's completely downwards. Um, you need a surgeon to fix that. Uh, there's you know, we can't fix that as optometrists. But we really work together well with them because neurooptometry is really the functional management of it, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the conditions. So let's say you obviously need diagnosis and management of a lot of conditions and that can happen with neuroophthalmology. But if it's not surgically correctable or correctable with a medication, sometimes it's difficult for ophthalmology to manage the complaint. Whereas optometrists have training in vision rehabilitation and vision therapy, which has clinical science behind it, showing that it's effective at getting people to adapt to either their vision loss or their double vision. And we can actually train the eyes to work together better as a team. Um, And then you had mentioned prism. So prism is a fancy way of something we can actually, it's a special way to grind lenses for glasses. That can move images left, right, up, and down. So let's pretend after a brain injury, your eyes just can't cross inwards very well. We can put prism in the glasses, which essentially artificially moves images outwards for you. So your eyes don't have
1: to That's work so, so hard. so cool. And so it just makes things a lot more comfortable. I had no idea that was a thing. Hmm. That's really neat. <laughs> yeah. A uh, couple things. One, I think we should take a minute to pause and... Um, Like, give some respect to both ophthalmologists and optometrists because I think this is a field that doesn't get enough credit for the amount of education and experience that has to go into, you know, the training for it and setting up a practice. I mean, like, that's a lot of work. We, you know, we give doctors a ton of credit and technically, you know, some of you guys are doctors. All of you guys are doctors. I don't know. But... But, we we're don't all, give it that much credit to people who specialize in the eye. like the eye. That's amazing that that it requires that much education to just learn about the eye. Sorry, that was a, that was my yeah. dumb tangent, but it just is kind of amazing. <laughs> um, well, that's kind of what I thought
3: when I went to school because <clears throat> I went into school knowing I wanted to work with patients with vision problems and brain injury. And so I actually didn't know that much about the eye. And then when I was in school, I was like, how could you take four whole years, you know, yeah. on an organ? And even then, I feel like I'm still learning things because the eyes are really complicated. And they're, how they work with the brain and work with the body is extensive. And so being able to understand them correctly is really difficult. And the cool thing about it, at least for me, I think it's cool, is that it continually changes. We're still learning new things yeah. on how the eyes work and how we interpret what we see. Which makes it a fun field to to continue with.
1: And this is also one of those things where, you know, I think we see a lot of or talk to a lot of survivors who, you know, are like, I'm dizzy. I know this is vestibular or, you know, I have brain fog. I know that you know how it's connected to your injury. But vision is one of those things that I think would say more frequently, or maybe even most frequently, people are like, I know I have this issue, but I don't know who to talk to about it. Um, like the double vision or, you know, I I feel like there's so many things where like people can identify what the problem is, but they're not really sure how to help fix it or where to go for it. So, um, this should be a pretty good one. I think for all of us, we're all learning along (laughs) together today. So,
2: I think there's a lot of obvious things. Like after stroke, you hear people with visual, like, you know, they lose field of vision. They can't see out the right or they can't see the left. But then there's probably a lot of um, very nuanced type conditions that maybe aren't quite so obvious and easy to rehab. So maybe we can start talking about some of the things you see most commonly as issues that people really don't know where to go with.
3: Yeah. So I actually think one of the biggest problems across the field, and not just with patients not knowing where to go, but I think providers as well, is that the signs and symptoms of vision problems after a con- like a mild concussion or a mild TBI are very subtle. So oftentimes right now, if you complain of double vision or blurry vision or really extensive light sensitivity you're definitely going to get a referral to an eye doctor. Whether it's the one that's going to help you or not is is you know a little bit different. Uh, most eye doctors are going to do what they're trained to do, which is just look at the eyeball. And in head injury, for the most part, I would say like ninety percent of the time, the eyeball's fine. Um, sometimes we'll find random things on exam like, oh, you happen to have glaucoma, you happen to have macular problems, but they're really not related to the head injury. They're more incidental findings. They're good that we found it. People really need routine eye care to make sure we find those things, but they're not related to the head injury. And so in the last five to ten years, we've been looking at symptomatology and found that more commonly symptoms that are screened in concussion but sent to other providers are actually visual problems. So, for instance, fatigue – So for fatigue with reading, fatigue with eye use, getting anxiety in visually crowded areas like grocery stores, dizziness actually can be vestibular, but it can also be ocular motor. So our eyes and ears talk to each other all the time. And so sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes it's both. Um, Headache. I think people often don't think that, oh, maybe the headache's coming from the eyes. And that's been my biggest mission as a provider is to educate a lot of other providers on, hey, if you have this patient with cognitive complaints like inattention and it's just not getting better, here are some eye movements that you could screen. And if they screen, you should refer them over so we can rehab it. Because the neat thing about the eyes is you can actively rehab them to get better. Uh, It's not this watch and wait and like, oh, maybe it'll get better. What we've found is in general, if people are going to self-resolve, they'll self-resolve in about four weeks. And if they don't self-resolve in four weeks, they need some rehab wow. to get better. And we don't know why those people need rehab and others don't, but we do know that those that do need rehab, they can get better. And I think that's what's exciting about this field is you can actually give someone yeah. something to do versus just like, ah, wait a minute. Well, it here's out. a good example. That's Erin,
1: we've talked about grocery store overload. Did you ever think it was uh-huh. specific to eyes?
2: Not at all. I thought it was all my attentional. Um, yeah, just you saying that I'm like, holy mother, (laughs) I have, um, right. I, I didn't ever think I had any eye issues. Um, I have extreme, um, I shouldn't say extreme, but I have pretty heavy, uh, fatigue when I am at screens too long and I wear blue light glasses, but I definitely find that I have to limit, like I can really only be on a screen for maybe an hour at a time, And then I need to get away and I need to do something different, especially at work or else I crash and burn. Um, Stores, like you said, I – especially early on, I couldn't even go into a store because it was just too bright, too overwhelming. Everything made me anxious and I just needed to get out of there. And, um, you know, I still feel that a little bit. So that's so interesting that this could be vision related. Yeah,
1: and and Uh, I – How do
2: you tell the difference?
1: I even made some connections, actually, while you were saying that, Jackie, because I have not extreme light sensitivity, but like fluorescent lights now, I just can't handle. And I do have some screen fatigue as well. Like on Wednesday, I had five Zoom meetings in a row for work. Five! (laughs) And it was brutal. (laughs) And, like, literally, I got off from the last one, I think, at 3 p.m. And I just told my team, I was like, this was a marathon. I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> but so I hadn't even really thought about, like, screen um, issues and the eyes, which it makes sense. You're staring at a screen. But, yeah, so I feel like both Erin and I, it sounds like, have things that we deal with that we did not connect to potential eye issues. So talk
3: to us yeah. so so many so many places to go from here with all these topics so I think I'll start first with how in the world can the eyes create all these cognitive problems and all these anxious mm-hmm. problems and so the first thing I always like to kind of give people an analogy from is to imagine something simple so imagine for instance like a soccer ball moved in front of you from the left to the right the way that the visual system works is that the eyeball the light signal from the soccer ball gets kind of move to the back of the retina, and then it's the retina has this wonderful job of transitioning that light signal into a chemical signal and sending it down the optic nerve. You have two optic nerves, so they have to share information. And then what they do is they actually traverse all the way to the back of the brain, to the occipital lobe. So even though your eyes are at the front, because that's a very common question, I got hit in the back, how in the world do I have a problem with the front? Usually the eyeballs themselves in the front are fine. And then the visual pathway to get all the way to the back goes all the way through the brain. And that's just to get the visual information into the brain. And then the occipital lobe, what it does is it sorts the information. And so it kind of sorts it based off of shape and size and where it's located. And then it sends it to different parts of the brain to be processed. So the occipital lobe will send visual information to the temporal lobe. And the temporal lobe's job is identification. So what is it and what is the meaning of it, right? So it kind of works with the hippocampus to be like this black, white, round thing. It's a soccer ball and it gives meaning to what soccer is. And then at the same time, the occipital lobe sends information to the parietal lobe, which is the top part of your head. And the parietal lobe tells – it doesn't know what things are. The parietal lobe cares about where things are. So then the parietal lobe
1: – Sorry, we're stopping to laugh the because Erin just put on her blue light glasses.
2: Yeah, I'm like, huh, as we're talking about this, my eyes are hurting.
1: It's been about 20 minutes. Sorry, Jackie. Right? Um, it's that was totally That just too fine. good not to, t- to mention
2: trying to be kind of more uh, discreet so. with it, but I guess I wasn't. <laughs> okay, Sorry, anyway, you were on a great yes, topic. Parietal
1: lobe.
3: Okay. <laughs> no, it's great. So the parietal lobe. So we're at the top of the head. So the parietal lobe doesn't care what the soccer ball is. It cares where it is. So it, it kind of gives you the idea of, you know, the soccer ball just moved from the left to the right. And it gives you the idea of where that visual information is relative to where you are. And then the parietal lobe and temporal lobe send it to your frontal lobe, which is the front of your head. And your frontal lobe is your decision maker. And so it decides like, okay, based off of what it is and where it is, how do I want to interact with it? Do I want to kick it? Do I want to just let it go by? And if it decides it wants to kick it, it's going to send a a signal down to your midbrain, which is the dead center, kind of the brain stem that goes into your neck. And it helps coordinate the eyes to follow the ball. And the eyes have to move at the exact same speed to follow the ball as the ball in the moment that the ball is moving. So you have to imagine how fast this process is. Mm. And so in something as simple as just moving your eyes from the left to the right, you've used every single lobe of your brain. And then, of course, if your head moves at the same time as your eyes or your body moves with it, then your vestibular system and your cerebellum kick in to make sure that you feel balanced. So your eyes can make you feel dizzy. If they're not communicating appropriately with your vestibular system. And so, because of that, it's really common for people to have visual problems, kind of quote unquote visual problems after a head injury that are not necessarily blurry vision or double vision. It's actually, you know, the complaint will be I have, so to go to the grocery store, right? What's the problem with the grocery store? it's so complicated and you don't realize how hard grocery stores are until you've had a head injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, the reason for that is imagine you're in a grocery store. So first of all, fluorescent lighting, which we'll get to very irritating for people. Oh, with get ready injury. for my
1: fluorescent Movement. lighting tangent. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> Just tell me when list. you want me to step on the soapbox <laughs> and I'll give it to you. <laughs> oh,
3: we'll talk about how you can make it better too. Um, So you have fluorescent lighting, which is already irritating. There's a ton of sounds, and most people are hypersensitive to sound after a head injury. Mm -hmm. Then you have movement. So that aside, you're walking down a grocery aisle, and you have to be able to walk and process the information at the same time. You have to remember what you want, right? So let's say you want ketchup secretly your brain has to be like, remember ketchup, remember ketchup, remember ketchup. And even if you bring a list with you, right? And if you – especially when you first have your head injury, you can remember that part where you look at the list and you're like, ketchup. And then you look at the wall of ketchups and you're like, what did I want again? And you have to look back at your list. <laughs> and it's that feedback of there's something to visual memory. You have to remember what's on your list. And that is actually an active process that has to happen in the brain. And then when you look at this, what I call the wall of ketchups, um, you have to decide – which ketchup do I want, right? So, do I want the one with no sugar? Do I want the one with that's like big? Do I want the small one? Do I want the organic one? So, now you have to make all these decisions. But at the same time, you have to still remember I want ketchup, right? So, you have to have that going on in the background. And then you have to reach for the ketchup. And then you, there's so there's so many subtle things that you have to realize while you're doing it. And if any of those processes are off, the brain is going to get very overwhelmed. And when the brain gets overwhelmed, it kind of gets sympathetic fight or flight, which makes us anxious and nauseous. And that's usually what will happen. I've had a lot of patients who are like, I just had a flat-out panic attack in the store. I'm like, yeah, it's common. And I think that's the biggest thing for me to tell people is it's common and it's not a panic disorder. It really actually is a I'm visually overwhelmed disorder and the brain doesn't know how to handle it. So wow.
2: what it's like you were a fly me- on the wall for me. <laughs> like this is how I am in the store still to this day. Jackie's
3: been stalking Making you a is so
2: hard. <laughs> yeah, I think so.
3: <laughs> well, and the first thing I always tell you—it's funny because so I was telling Mariah earlier. So I moved to Virginia from California, and in California, specifically the Bay Area, it's expensive, and so most grocery stores are very small. And then I moved to Virginia. These stores oh, yeah. are massive. I think it was easier for my patients in California because you didn't have 30 types of ketchup. There's you had more limited shelf space. And so yeah. here, <laughs> here I'm like, man, even I have a small panic attack in these stores. They're Go just to Texas. The
1: Let me tell you,
2: um, <laughs> I can't I'm do that. saying that as a Texan. bigger so, in Texas. Yeah,
1: so I, I feel entitled <laughs> to to knock my <laughs> but those stores are insane. Yeah.
3: So the first thing I tell people is find a smaller grocery <laughs> store number one like mm. don't don't be a hero you know and find like the biggest one and also recognize that it's a visual overwhelm problem so don't go into a store i so you hate stores so usually what'll happen is people will do the knee jerk reaction of i'm going to avoid it avoid it avoid it and then i'm going to go in and i'm going to find 45 items because i only want to go once a month Um, It's actually better for you to go more often and get like five to ten items and then get out of there faster. So giving yourself small doses at the grocery store instead of one giant one that then kind of puts you out of commission for a few days is actually Mm -hmm. better for the brain. And the more you do it, actually, the better the brain will get at it. But if you just kind of overwhelm it by just trying to get it out over with, um, the brain doesn't handle it very well.
2: So. Yep, I can speak from personal experience. I've <laughs> had many a solo trip to the grocery store cuz I'm like I just can't handle this today. I do not have the energy.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a and the funny part is I've I've given lectures for a long time about grocery stores in particular and I think if you've never had a head injury you don't understand it. And I had one sports medicine physician. I'll never forget the day that she called me and she goes, "You know, I've listened to your lectures for years and you always say like you know, if a patient has problems with a grocery store, it might be a visual disorder or vestibular disorder. You should send it to either myself or PT or or neurooptometry or PT to figure it out and help them to get over it. And, um, she was like, I kind of dismissed it. And then she got a head injury and she was like, and in the back of my head, I was like, you don't, don't go to the grocery store. She's like, but I had to, right. Because I'm a mom and I had to pick up things for the kids. And she's like, so I had a head injury. I went into the store, I had a panic attack. And then she called me right away and she goes, I feel like I need to call every single one of my patients
1: and apologize for them for underplaying how awful that is. It's really funny. Uh You got an I told you so moment out of it.
2: Uh Actually, now
1: that I'm thinking about this, so the way I grocery shop and it's evolved over time, and I kind of wonder if I've just adapted it this way because of what I need to function. But so I go to a smaller grocery store, I go to it's more of like a farm stand kind of thing, but it's a big farm stand. I don't know what you would call it, Erin. You know what I'm talking about.
2: Uh, yeah. But it's, farm yeah, store. it's a yeah. farm
1: store with a whole lot of other things like pasta and sauces and stuff like that. I do most, most of my grocery shopping there because it doesn't have insane lighting. It's not as overwhelming. It's a friendlier environment. And then I do like that very essential things from the grocery store if I have to go after that. So I'll like go and get five things, you know, that I can't get at this farm store. But yeah, I wonder, I didn't like consciously make that decision based on overwhelm. It was more like, I like this place, but I think there's a lot, and there's a lot to the decision.
3: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And what, what you find comfortable, yeah, people don't realize comfort. how much they
1: adapt mm-hmm. their lives. Yeah, That's a good way of looking mm-hmm. at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So. Yeah, and you're One really... The ways- oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to oh, no, say go you've hit the nail on the head with talking about all the different parts of the brain that are used to do any of this um, because I, I'm remembering more and more as we talk, when I initially had my injury, I had a bleed on in the pons area of my brain um, in the subarachnoid layer. And um, I had a ton of floaters after my injury and my eyes you know I couldn't spend any time on screens I couldn't read I couldn't follow well enough I couldn't do any of that and I was getting some flashes and I remembered I have a significant eye history from a injury to my eyeball and I thought oh my glaucoma is getting worse I need to go see the eye doctor and they were like no everything's fine everything's great nothing's wrong but it felt wrong and so you're you're bringing all this back to me, and then just thinking about all the different areas of my brain that were being used just to, you know, pick up the can I need out of the pantry to make a recipe, like that's that's exhausting. I, I yeah. Get it now. <laughs> now that you spell
1: it out that way, I don't think I've ever had anyone walk me through the process of how how you take visuals in and how your brain processes and then turns it into thought and action. It's fascinating. Um,
3: it's yeah. an amazing and it's, thing. And what's cool about it, it's so mapped out. I mean, it takes about, I think they've estimated 70% of the brain is in some way dedicated to so vision. Cool. And how you interpret mm-hmm. vision or interact with your vision. And so that's why it doesn't really matter where you get hit in the head. There's a way for vision to be impacted, and it's very commonly impacted. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, so when you say ponds, immediately in my head, I'm like, well, the cicades are generated there. The pursuits are generated there. Like I can name all the eye movements where I'm like, I know exactly what eye movements could definitely have bothered you um, just by the location of, of where your bleed is. And that's the neat thing about eyes is that I often will look at people. I love looking at people's scans and history before they see me. Because I like predicting what eye <laughs> movements are involved. And for me, if I know what eye movements are involved, I know exactly what symptoms are going It's like a game. Have. Before they even come in <laughs> yeah. my door. I'm like, they're going to hate yeah. this. They're going to hate that.
1: They're going to hate this. <laughs> That's actually really
2: So cool. tell me about eye movements. Are you having people come in and they just have to follow your finger around? Or how are you diagnosing people?
3: So there's a couple of ways you can diagnose it. We have machines um, that are getting better. Eye trackers on the market are getting better, which I think is helpful for patients to see what I see. Um, I I don't necessarily feel that I've ever needed a machine to diagnose or find the things that I've needed to see for eye movements. But um, the machines, I think, are helpful for then the patients to see what I see, which I think is really helpful in brain injury because I think, as you know, one of the problems with brain injury is you have all these complaints. And most of your diagnostic testing – is normal. I mean, obviously you had a bleed, so you had a finding on an MRI, but the majority of people will have a normal MRI or a normal CT scan. And it's really frustrating to have normal results because you don't feel normal. And so that's the one nice thing about the eye movements is you actually can objectively be like, no, I can see that the eye movements aren't working very well. And eye movements are actually looked at now, especially in sports for being used to objectively track and diagnose a concussion because you can, the provider can see it. Um, and so that's, I know they're using that on sign lines of at, like the NCAA and things like that, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as eye movement, so one of the, there's a bunch, obviously you can imagine, but they all have different parts of the brain. So let's say you wanted to look at something right side to side, the speed of it matters. So if something's moving slowly in front of you from side to side, we usually use what's called our smooth pursuit to track it. So it's just, as you can imagine, your eyes very smoothly follow the ball. But let's say you're trying to look from point A to point B. That's actually a different uh, movement. That's called a saccade. And so you jump your eyes from A to B and it's a different part of the brain. And actually making an eye movement up and making one down, different part of the brain than right, different than left. So you can imagine, like I have some patients where they're like, you know, I'm fine, except when I move my eyes to the right, man, I get nauseous. Um, And that's what's interesting is in brain injury in particular, when these are off, the symptoms are usually I get nauseous brain fog, headache, dizzy when I move my eyes. And whereas, you know, developmentally, sometimes uh, kids especially can can grow up and just not have very good saccades or not have very accurate pursuits, but they don't usually complain of those symptoms, the nausea and the dizziness, the way brain injury patients will. So you can even kind of tell like, oh, this is more likely brain injury than than developmental just based off of the symptoms you're getting from it, which is interesting as well. So those are just moving your eyes up and down side to side. So how fast things go will matter. The other movements you have is, you know, if you're looking straight ahead, your eyes are, imagine them kind of parallel to each other. And then when you move your eyes from straight ahead, say up close, like to your computer, they have to cross in. And they have to do it perfectly together. If one crosses more than the other, you're going to get double vision. So that's where people get a lot of double is that that crossing mechanism, we call it convergence, is off. And so one eye is crossing faster than the other. And so you're seeing double when you look up close. To hold your eyes in a crossed position as well takes a ton of energy from the brain. I liken it to holding your arms out all day. Like you can do it. You can hold your arms out perpendicular all day long, but your shoulders start to burn. And that's kind of what happens with people who have trouble with convergence on the computer. They're holding their eyes in that position for long periods of time and their eyes just kind of start to burn. And they just don't Mm -hmm. want to do it anymore. And they just, you know, Mm -hmm. I just, and you know the feeling. You want to rub your eyes. Mm -hmm. You just want to get up. You don't want to look at it. You can't. And it's not necessarily double. And that's what I think is so interesting about these complaints is it's not double. I just don't want to do it. That's usually – I just don't like the computer. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like I just need to stop. (laughs) It's time to go home now. But no, it's only noon and I need to work till four.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So – and because it's a muscular movement, one of the things I've found that's helpful for people too is – Usually we think, you know, let's just do as much as we can. And then when we're done, we're done. But the eyes are fatigable and actually you'll get more done if you take proactive breaks. So if every 20 minutes, instead of waiting that hour until your eyes just can't do it anymore, if you actually stop at 20 minutes and either look far away or close your eyes and do a mindfulness meditation, which I love for people um, after brain injury because we all need mindfulness in our lives. And take a proactive eye break for two to three minutes and then do 20 more minutes of work, you'll actually find that you won't get nearly as bad of symptoms. And you'll actually be able to work longer doing multiple 20-minute segments than just powering through that 45 minutes to an hour, um, which I think can is I just super pause helpful. And there, actually,
2: yeah. That is a lesson I continue to learn. I start thinking, okay, I got this. I'm going to work a little bit longer. I can do a little bit more today. And then that's the week that I end up feeling super depressed, crying all night long or having trouble sleeping. You know, like that's when symptoms start coming out of my brain injury. Whereas if I am mindful and just pay attention to the fact that okay, you work 20 minutes, it's okay to take a deep breath, it's okay to take a walk and come back to it. I'm fine mm-hmm. and I'm happy. <laughs> but for some reason we just we want to be productive and at least me, I want to be productive and I keep trying to push the line when really Just stay in my lane.
1: Just one of the million (laughs) reminders to take it easy on yourself. Uh It does not hurt you. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Well, even the
2: transition to Zoom,
3: I think, this year in COVID, everyone, even if you haven't had a brain injury, everyone's in like, oh, eight hours on the computer is awful. And yeah, the eyes were not meant for it. And so a lot of the digital eye strain, I know you mentioned blue blockers. A lot of the digital Mm -hmm. eye strain, it's not from the blue light of your computer. It's actually from just looking at your computer for that long. And the brightness. And so actually, if you just take proactive eye breaks, because you'll, as you said, like even with my blue blockers, I still I still have eye strain. And, and it's because the blue light's really not causing the eye strain. It's just the computer distance itself. Um, and so it's taking proactive breaks every 20 minutes. And and I usually tell people, there's an adage in, in optometry, we always tell people it's the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, take a 20-second break, look 20 feet away. And the new one, one of my colleagues added, he's like, I like the other 20-minute rule, which is like, go outside for 20 minutes a day too. Like, get up, move around. It's not good to just be sitting on our yeah. computers all get the time. Get some vitamin D while you're at um, it. Yeah. I, the other hard part, and you had mentioned it too, was what's interesting about brain injury than any other injury in the body is that your brain regulates your self-awareness and it's your self-awareness of its own injury, which is kind of interesting, right? Because let's say you tore your hamstring and you want to go back to running. The second you get pain, your brain's going to be like, ooh, you know, that that's a, as much jogging as we're going to do today. <laughs> and it's going to stop. But with the brain injury and you're starting on the computer and you're really into what you're doing and you're, you just want to get it done, the brain will kind of override itself and be like, you can keep going. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't do that yep. with any other muscle, but it'll do it with itself, right? Like, oh, you can
1: keep yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard to gauge, And then, like too. you said, it just knocks yeah, you out. It's, it's hard to gauge, yeah. like, where your meter is when you're feeling that fatigue. And it's also easy for a doctor to say, with a hamstring injury, when you feel pain, that's an issue. But it's a lot harder for a doctor to say, if you're fatigued, that's an issue. Because, you know, like, how do they help define what that is for every brain injury patient? It's probably a little different. And to your point about, you know, um, the pandemic and Zoom, I was chuckling to myself because I think it was a clubhouse room that I was in, but somebody was talking about a brain injury conference that they attended. And I can't remember what brain injury association it was, maybe Massachusetts, but they did a two day Zoom conference for the brain injury association. And so they had all of, and he was saying it started at 8 a.m. So they had all of these people with brain injuries sitting on Zoom for two days starting at 8 a.m. It just made me laugh out loud So I was like, who thought that was a good idea?
2: But Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's been tough. Everything moving virtual has been really Mm -hmm. tricky. And, you know, going back to the point, Mariah and Jackie, you both have been on it. You know, it's almost like you really need to understand yourself and you need to stop yourself before you get fatigued. Is what I'm learning. Because once I get fatigued, my brain is too tired to then figure out that, oh, you've passed your limit. You need to stop now. And these are things you can do to feel better. I need to stop myself before that happens. Otherwise, that whole chain of events in my brain is just, Pfft.
1: yeah, I'm like, and it doesn't w- work. I'm waggling <laughs> my head over here because I'm like agreeing so vehemently because I'm so bad at noticing when it's happening until it's too late. And then I'm just having a meltdown. <laughs> so,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. The other thing that can happen too is, especially the eyes, which people don't realize, is you can get what I call delayed symptoms. So it's like, I feel fine reading for 25 minutes and then two hours later I get a massive headache. Those are really hard Hmm. because you can't feel it in the moment. So it's really hard to self-regulate. So what I usually tell people is to just keep what I call like a, a symptom log and just say, you know, I read for 25 minutes and then two hours later I got a massive headache and then I say, okay, so cut it back. So let's say you read for 15 minutes, see if you get that headache. And if you don't, then you know that 15 minutes is an okay time for your brain to work, but 25 is not. Um, I always say your symptoms are your brain's way of telling you you did too much. And, And it doesn't mean you did too much forever. Usually you can actually gradually build your endurance just like with any other muscle or organ, but you have to get it to a comfort level and find your comfort level. And I think brain injury survivors are just so used to pushing through everything and being silent about their struggle. That they don't think like, oh, I should take a break. And then what is a break, right? So with the eyes, an eye break is not getting up to do the laundry, because <laughs> the laundry mm-hmm. is a visual task, right? It's, it's an eye break is closing the eyeballs. It, it that's what it is. It's, it's letting them rest. And I don't think we do that. If
1: you are well, saying well. I should not do the laundry, I'm on board. <laughs>
2: <laughs> had, Sorry, actually, Nat. Here's you another you chore. Can do it. But just don't do it as your
3: break, <laughs> right? Like consider Stop. it
2: a task. <laughs> Because
3: hmm. that's where well, people wear are, themselves out. Yeah. Is they they are doing other things that are still involving the eye movements, and they're
1: underestimating how much it's still taxing. Your yeah, mind. and I think there's also this um, expectation that this is like your improvement is linear. Um, at least for me, it has. I'm like I'm two and a half years out almost, and um, for me, like I still do wear myself thin, and then have a bit of a setback sometimes. Even in stages where I'm like, I'm better, I'm, you know, I'm done with this recovery. I'm, I got this. I still do sort of wear myself too thin and have to go through like a little bit of a, a recovery, you know, a mini recovery journey.
3: Yeah, and Aaron had done this wonderful hand <laughs> motion while you are yeah. talking of, like, the roller coaster <laughs> yeah. of healing. Mm-hmm. I always love telling people about that roller coaster of healing because the roller coaster of healing essentially is you're finally – so the first part, you just feel awful all the time. Like, you're just always awful. And then you get to a point where you start having good days. And so you're mm-hmm. like, I'm having a good day. I'm going to do all the of the The curse things. of the good day. And then the next yeah. – Days are awful, yep. (laughs) So it's not so much actually what's kind of neat is if you start to recognize your patterns, you can have more good days if you actually hold yourself back a little bit on your good days and and don't do all the things on your good days. In which case, you'll actually have more good days in a row and eliminate the bad days because the bad days just said like you did too much on your good day. Um, but what I always tell people that's optimistic is if you have a day where you feel normal and you feel great. That means your brain has the potential to feel normal and feel great. And that's something to hold
1: on to, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like just because you have that day doesn't mean you need to push beyond. Why not enjoy that really good day, take it easy, and like take it for what it is. Proof that like there is the potential for that. And more of it if you do take care of
2: yourself. Mm. (laughs) But yeah. So to kind of drive the conversation a little bit, you know, there's two things I'm curious about. Um, we've talked a lot about the getting hit in the head and I'd love to know, you know, what we can do to help with those. And then I'd also, I hope that we can get to um, more of the acquired brain injury type symptoms and what we can do for some of those. Cause I think they're separate. I think they're two different things, but I'm not sure. They're a little sure. bit different.
3: Yeah, they mm-hmm. definitely are a little, they're, they're kind of same, same, but different uh, as far as how the eyes work with them. Um so remind me of your first question. (laughs) Yeah, so
2: what can we do? (laughs) So for our concussion listeners, um, I think you know they're the ones that I hear a lot of um kind of these more subtle symptoms of things not tracking right and needing therapy to help with those types of things. And then there's that so what can we do for them? And then there's that whole other bucket of the acquired visual field loss, that sort of stuff that we haven't really haven't started getting yet. into yet.
3: Yeah. yeah. So with the really subtle ocular motor, we call these ocular motor deficits. Uh, you want to find a provider who can diagnose and treat them. So I'm really big on training other providers to know what to screen to send for me. They might not treat it, but they need to know what to look for. And that's huge. Um, so nationally we have a group called Nora or the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association. And that's where neurooptometrists, there's like a list of us and, and you can go in and everyone has different training. So I always say, look up your provider and see what their background is. But all of us have kind of dedicated ourselves to doing this. And so the big thing for me is being evaluated because if it's something we can fix, whether it's with glasses or with vision rehab, let's fix it. Um, there's really no reason not to. And then sometimes I'll see a patient and they'll come see me because they think it's vision, and I do this whole screening, and I'm like, you know, it's really vestibular. Or it's cervical, which is interesting, but the eyes, the ears, and the neck talk to each other. So sometimes, you know, patients have all these eye movement complaints, but really at the end of the day, it's because their neck is all messed up, and they need to go to a physical therapist for cervical problems, or they need to go to a physical therapist for their vestibular problems, and trying to find, you know, a provider for each of those. And then one nice thing is, you know, the best thing that can happen is you come to see me, and I tell you it's not your eyes, which means it has to be something else. And then you go. Sometimes that's the problem with brain injury is there's so many providers you might not need to see because the brain is so expansive, and so trying to navigate that way, um, I think is the best for patients. Um, and sometimes you know if if you go to an eye doctor and they tell you your eyeballs are normal, awesome, you don't need another thing or another thing to have to battle through in your brain injury, but. If you, they're not someone that specializes in brain injury rehab, then it might not be the perfect provider for the, the other aspect of it. Um, so I always say getting an eye health exam with your regular eye doctor is awesome, and you should definitely do it. If you feel like you have eye symptoms like flashes and floaters like you had, you definitely need to go back and make sure the eyeballs are okay. But once they say they're okay, you might need to see a specialist that does a little bit
1: more above and beyond that um, for the rehab part. I feel like we, we've got a little bit of an awareness issue here, um, and I don't know if you feel this way listening to Jackie, Aaron, but like the fact that both of us walked into this chat thinking that we did not really have issues that a neurooptometrist would have been able to help us with. And now we're both like sitting here like, yep, yep, yep. Definitely. I mean, like (laughs) I I, I had this stage in my recovery where I, I couldn't walk very much. I was, you know, like very early stages, but I would walk around the block just to get out of my house. And I felt like my i my brain wasn't processing what I was walking by um as quickly as I was walking. If that makes sense. This is another problem. It's really yeah. hard to express what you're feeling when it comes to your eyes sometimes. but um I just uh, assumed that that was vestibular somehow because I was also having some vertigo. and you know, eventually it went away on its own, and I never thought I would have had to see a neurooptometrist. Did do you can you relate to this, Erin? Like this, did anyone talk to you about neurooptometry when you were in the hospital or leaving the hospital or afterward? Nobody ever mentioned it to me. Not at all. Yeah,
2: yeah. When I mentioned it, because I only left the hospital with a neurosurgery consult, because that's who is following me most um, during my hospital stay. And when I mentioned to him, I'm like, you know, I had an eye injury, I have glaucoma, and now I'm getting all these floaters and symptoms again he's like yeah there's probably just too much pressure in your mm-hmm. brain um, yeah. he's like you can go to your eye doctor if you want to if it'll make you feel better
1: but even if you'd gone and to I your, did. yeah if you went to your eye doctor and they yeah. said you were fine i don't know i just feel like this is yeah
2: i did and structurally i was fine yeah. my pressures were fine they're like you know they did visual field testing i had a um optometry student on one of mine who did a lot of um little baseline stuff cuz she wants to track me over time mm-hmm which I thought was really cool, but no one was looking at, you know, I guess I don't know because I don't know all the tests they do, but no one was talking to me about tracking and overwhelm and anxiety and how some of that can be tied into your vision. Yeah.
1: So I feel like somebody's, somebody out there has got to do a better job with a checklist of things that brain injury survivors, regardless of type of brain injury, should probably do, you know. Um, in their recovery journey, and make sure that neurooptometry is on there, because I feel like there's this gap between recognizing a symptom and knowing that it could be eye related, yeah,
3: yeah, no, and I think part of that also is it's a very small field of and it's a very rapidly growing field, but it's very small. so when I did my residency, which was over ten years ago, there were only four residencies in the country, wow, for it. four. So only four of us getting pumped out a year. I think now there's 11 or 12. So for us, exponential growth, (laughs) but um, Mm -hmm. not huge. And I think what's helping too is research. I think, you know, five, 10 years ago, even not even in vision, just in general in rehab for brain injury, it was still a very passive model of like watch and wait and and see how it gets better. And it was really only in the last five years with a couple of clinical studies that have come out of sports related concussion, where they say, hey, not only can you because We didn't rehab before because it makes you feel kind of gross during rehab. I mean, candidly, people, you kind of hate me a little bit (laughs) because I I provoke your symptoms on purpose um, in a very controlled way. But we used to, right, do no harm. So before when we would try this, this type of therapy and it made people feel worse, well, we don't want to make you feel worse, so we wouldn't do it. And then in the last five to 10 years, studies have shown like, yeah, you might make them feel worse, but actually in the long run, you can get them better faster. And so, and, and there's a bunch of studies that say, by the way, when people feel worse, it doesn't mean that their brain is hurt. Um, And I think that was crucial for us in the therapy area of being like, okay, I'm okay knowing that my patient tells me I'm making them more nauseous, but I'm not hurting their brain and I'm not hurting them. And I'm actually in the long run, it's good for them to get better. And I think we need, as providers, needed to know that before we could really like jump on the bandwagon of let's do things. Because even when I, I did clinical research in sports concussion for a few years, and when we first started our trial before these studies came out, we just watched to see what the eye movements would do. We didn't intervene. And now we intervene all the time because we know that it's much better to intervene sooner rather than later. Um, so I agree. I think neurooptometry in general needs to do a better job. Same with vestibular PT and cervical PT. I think a lot of people just don't know what types of rehabs are out there. They don't know that optometrists can specialize. They don't know that physical therapists can specialize. I work with a lot of PTs that are in the same boat where they get a lot of patients who are like, man, I wish I would have gotten this person five months ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it doesn't mean we can't rehab you no matter how long you are from your injury. Just It's a little harder. It takes a little longer. But it, there's no like absolute no, I can't help you, which is nice. Yeah. But I think educating physicians – is huge. And some know a ton about us and some don't know anything. And the other problem with brain injury is brain injury pops up everywhere. It pops up in the ER. It pops up in pediatrician's office. It pops up in sports med. It's it's not like, oh, it's just this one group. We just need to tell this one group we exist. It's kind of like, we need to tell everyone we exist. And that's a very hard public comp- campaign to do Yeah, for a small group of people.
2: And <laughs> what I'm hearing from you too is you're different than a lot of other doctors. Um, a lot of doctors, like you know, your neurologist or whatnot, they'll mm-hmm. prescribe medication. But if there's any type of rehabilitation component, you get turfed out to somebody else. But what I'm hearing you say in neurooptometry, you actually do some of the rehab in that session. It's not mm-hmm. so much a turfing, yeah. Um, which is kind of cool. A doctor doing like hands-on treatments. That's not a pill. Yeah. That's- yeah. differentiates what you, you a know? little
3: bit. <laughs> it's kind of right? nice. I, I will say yeah. sometimes we need people to do the pills. Um, <laughs> so I work a mm-hmm. lot with physical medicine and rehabilitation or primary care or their neurologists and say like, Hey, can you manage this migraine for me? Because we need that migraine under control for me to do my rehab <laughs> or, you know, and, and I think there's, and that's where you just need a really good team that communicates really well with each other. Yeah. Um, my favorite physicians to work with are, PM&Rs or physical medicine and rehabilitation because they really understand rehab, I don't feel like they turf it so much as they guide patients with it, right? So it's, Mm -hmm. let me help medically manage you and let me guide you in what type of therapies I think you need. And then they are like that one person in charge. Because the other hard part for brain injury is you have a brain injury. How are you supposed to be able to remember everything your provider said, know all the other options out there, be able to even research it because you feel awful, I mean, I think if someone has a caretaker, they do a lot better with a brain injury than if they don't, but that caretaker has to do a ton of work Yeah, too, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I'm sorry. And that's a common theme that comes up for our Very, show. I mean, that's yeah. a big reason why we have the show is because neither one of us had the capacity and our husbands were doing everything they could to keep the world running along with taking on our care. But to research some of these nuances or to even know where to look was just completely overwhelming and we, neither one of us felt like we had a spot to go. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I'm sorry to have sidetracked the conversation that way, but it just seems like, you know, if patient education needs to happen in order for you to better understand your symptoms and what they might be connected to so that you can seek out the right caregivers, then there does need to be a certain element of doctor education um, in order for them to conduct the patient education. I don't know, you know, like it just feels like there's a funny disconnect there, but it shouldn't be that hard to hurdle. Anyway, um,
3: so anyway. I usually say it takes like five, so it's it, the big problem for us is it's called um, kind of uh, from lab. So from bench to chair. So when something changes in science and, and all the clinical trials are saying blah, blah, blah. It takes like 10 years for all of the clinicians to get on board. That's usually the average amount of time it takes for things in research to change clinical care. So I think knowing that the changes in research were so recent, I think that's really the gap, which is super frustrating for patients because patients are like, I don't understand why there's this gap. Why don't you do? But if you have to imagine too, and I always tell people like, it's really easy for me to stay on top of research for my profession. I am a very, very narrow field. And even then, it's overwhelming with how much research comes out in head injury. But imagine, I always say, the most daunting job is primary care because you Mm -hmm. need to know that about everything. A little bit of everything. I have the luxury of only having a very small thing I need to stay up on and up to date with. And primary care has to be up to date on everything.
1: And I think it's just a daunting task.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Anyway, so Erin, you were asking about acquired brain injury and vision issues resulting from that. Why don't we jump to that? Because I'm curious about this. This is a world that I am less familiar with, but we have talked to a couple survivors who do have, you know, vision issues because of it. So,
3: Sure. So I think the main acquired injury where we're thinking about that's not trauma, and um, that's going to be causing vision problems, usually are going to be stroke or bleeds. Um, and right. And, and sometimes it's hemorrhagic stroke is what we would call a bleed anyways, or ruptured aneurysm, or even, you know, if you have brain surgery because of, let's say they find a tumor and they do surgery, the surgery itself is actually kind of a little bit of an acquired trauma as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they behave very differently than my closed head injury patients. So, for one, what's interesting to me, I actually find my close hundred patients have much more symptoms of headache, dizziness, nausea with eye movements that you just don't see necessarily in the stroke population. Um, if in the acquired population they had a specific injury in a specific area that regulates eye movements, so for instance, the brainstem or the pons or the cerebellum, um, those patients in particular, you want to definitely look at eye movements, but the majority for stroke is going to be visual field loss um, or visual processing disorders. And so we can jump into that a little bit because they're very different for symptoms. So the first one is visual field loss. And what's interesting about visual field loss is the brain is mapped out beautifully in the sense of where, if a lesion happens in a certain part of a brain along the visual pathway, it will create a very specific type of visual field loss. So unlike visual field loss, um, where it's just like, oh, I just can't see out of my right eye. When it happens in the brain, after the optic nerves share their information that I mentioned before, you have two of them and then they kind of crisscross in the middle. After that crisscross, which is pretty much happens right, pretty much right after the eyeballs, um, everything that's on your left visual field is housed on the right side of your brain and everything in the right visual field is housed in the left side of your brain. So it's flipped. And so what happens is a patient, let's say they get a stroke on the right side of their brain. Uh, let's say the back part, so the right occipital lobe, they'll actually lose the left half of their vision in both eyes. I think that's the first thing that's super hard for them to understand is because they'll come in and they'll be like, something's wrong with my left eye. It's not actually your left eye. And then they get confused because then the eye doctor's like, your eyes are normal. (laughs) And it's like, it's not the left eye, it's the left side. And, And that's even harder, I think, to be able to compensate for because the brain is a trickster. And so unlike if you had um, vision loss in the eyeball, where if you have vision loss in the eyeball, you'll have like a gray spot and it's like, oh, this gray spot is in my way and it's very annoying and I have to look around it, like in macular degeneration, it's just very annoying. In the brain, the brain actually will try to mask that it's not there. And it does this all the time, so it's not surprising the brain does it. So for instance, every single person has a blind spot. So where your optic nerve inserts into the eyeball, there's no... Um, Photoreceptors there, so we actually each have a blind spot, and you can always Google like how to find my blind spot. It's like a fun visual trick to like see it, and you're like, "Ah, huh. um, I will be doing your this brain now." Actively <laughs> fills it in all the time, right. so it's actively always filling in your blind spot. So it has the mechanisms to fill in holes, and so the problem with that with a lot of patients after they've had a stroke is that they might not actually say, I have vision loss on the left side. They'll just bump into things on the left side or they'll feel overwhelmed by things on the left side or they won't attend to the left side. And what's happening is that in their perception, their visual field is whole. But in reality, it's cut in half. And so things will be on their left side and they don't see it, but they're not even aware to look at it. And so with those patients, the first thing you have to do is map out what their visual field looks like. Um, So you can get an idea of what they're unaware is there. And then you have to educate them about it and really get them to understand it, which can be hard because sometimes in the stroke, the brain loses the perceptual ability to be aware of things, which is an interesting whole other topic of how complicated strokes can be is your brain will trick you to deny literally just deny there's a problem. I'll be like, you know, you're blind on the left side. And patients are like, no, nah, I'm fine.
2: i like, no, you're not though. Oh, yeah. We'll have um, like people paralyzed on their whole right side of their body and they totally neglect that. Yeah, It's like, no, yeah. that side just doesn't exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it is. Exactly. It is a, I think it was Matt Campbell from the Midwest Concussion Clinic who was talking about vestibular issues and how vestibular patients just find a way to compensate for their vestibular issues that they don't even know, know about. And he was telling the story of one of his patients who used to like, walk around her the front of her car to get to her trunk um, because she had issues on her left side and so she didn't want to turn left. So she, she wasn't an ambi-turner if you want to go back to a Zoolander reference, but like <laughs> she would walk around the front of her car and then right turn right and then go to the trunk that way, which is the scenic route. But yeah, it is amazing how the brain can do that.
3: And it's amazing how people will kind of create their own ways to adapt and then they tell you they're fine. Yeah. They're like, oh, does it bother you? No, it's fine. Yeah. And then you have to ask their caretaker, do they do things normally? And the caretaker's like, no, they do not. <laughs> and you're like,
2: okay, mm-hmm. good. I'm
3: glad I have a third-party person to yeah. help me out with this. And caretakers are super helpful, and that frustrates the patient, though, because they they always look at their caretaker like their caretaker is giving them out. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, don't tell <laughs> them this. You've betrayed I'm me. like, I can't help yeah. you if I don't know what you do. Yeah. Um, but the, So with the training for them, a lot of the training, first and foremost, is awareness. So we have to be aware of what you've lost So we can figure out either A, how to adapt your environment to make it better, how to give you tricks, and then how to rehab you. So if you've lost visual field on the left side, we actually use your eye movements to teach you how to scan better to the left. And studies have shown that if you don't teach people how to do it, they often develop on their own a really irregular way to do it that's not efficient. And the problem is if you're not efficient at scanning your blind side and you're always kind of concerned with your blind side, You're bumping into things, which can create fear. And then oftentimes that fear is fear of going into new places because your fear of falling. And I think most people, after they've had a head injury, the fear of falling is huge. last thing you want is another head injury, especially if they're older and they have vestibular issues. So they have balance problems too. And then what happens is they get homebound. And then when they're homebound, they get depressed. And then when they're depressed, you know, and it's kind of this terrible cycle that can happen with patients. And my big thing is I love to empower people when they come see me. And part of that is being very honest about their visual field loss. Oftentimes providers will say like, you know, I know you've lost the left side of your vision, but some people, they get this back and it comes back in like a year. So just wait it out. And actually statistically, only like 8% of people actually get their full vision back, which is so low. Wow. Um, 50% of people, it's, it is what it is after their head injury. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get worse. And like 40%, it'll get like partially better. And so I think it's really helpful to be honest with people about those numbers. And I always tell people, let's rehab like it's not going to get better so that we know you can do all the things you want to do in life, even if this doesn't get better. And if miraculously you're in that 8%, we're like, poof, it like comes back. Great. But if you're not, we're able to handle that. Because I think if we're in this watch and wait period, it makes it a barrier for people to be really aggressive in rehab. And in stroke rehab, the more aggressive and motivated a patient can be, the better their life's gonna be because they learn how to appropriately adapt to it and efficiently adapt to it to actually being as normal as they can.
2: And those numbers you mentioned are those with therapy, or is it worse if you don't have neurooptometry?
3: Sure. So the therapy itself does not fix the visual field. The field is what it is. Whether you get vision back or not has nothing to do with what you do. And that's also an interesting thing to tell people is, you know, if you do my therapy, your field will not necessarily get better or worse. That's just based on how the brain decides it wants to heal. It depends on what was damaged, how much it was damaged. And then everyone's brain is different. They've looked at studies to look at, like, location of stroke, how long it took for the patient to get to the ER, how long it took for the ER to do, you know, changes in the stroke. And they've looked at all those things and impact on vision, and they can't find anything that correlates with it. So the other thing I find a lot of people do secretly is they kind of blame themselves, right? They'll be like, well, you know, I actually had tingling two days earlier, and if I would have gone to the the ER two days earlier, you know, maybe this wouldn't have all happened. And yeah, that's true. Um, you know, if you get early signs of stroke, the best thing you can do is get to the ER right away. But some studies have shown that like once a stroke is is lodged, you know, there's really, you, there's no reason to beat yourself up about it. The, it's going to be what it's going to be at that point. So if you can identify it early and go, that's great. But I find a lot of my patients secretly when I really probe them, they blame themselves, you know, and, and that doesn't help them in their recovery at all. Um, and it, it definitely doesn't. I don't know, emotionally for me, emotions after a stroke are huge because you need to get past the event. I think one area of, of referral for me that's huge in stroke and vision loss is psych. Um, because you. it's all of, <laughs> all of a sudden you lost vision. And, and I always ask, especially vision loss, um, visual field loss. We don't get this in, in our concussion patients, but in our stroke patients all the time. I always ask, like, how do you feel about your vision loss? Because it is, I woke up one morning and my vision was gone. You don't get that with glaucoma and macular degeneration. They have decades to prepare for their vision loss. Stroke patients do not. And acquired brain injury patients do not. Bleeds do not. They just wake up with it. And now all of a sudden their life has changed. And they might not be able to do and see the things that they love anymore. For the most part, we can get you to do most things. The hardest thing for me is driving. We can't, if if that visual field is that dense, even if you see 20-20, if it's that dense, we can't let you drive. And that really inhibits people's independence. And it's, those are hard things to deal with. And I think it's really important that they talk about it
1: with someone who's not
3: me, who's trained in how to handle your emotions.
1: (laughs) No matter what kind of brain injury you have, it's, it's a trauma. And that has usually significant physical impact, which leads to significant emotional impact. And it's important to talk about that stuff. So important.
3: And to get the caretaker to go too. Um, I've had so many caretakers who are like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, your life changed too. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's life changed abruptly. And those big changes in life are really important to talk about because it makes you guys a better team if you're open and honest about how you feel. And all and my big thing is all of your feelings are valid. A lot of for me, it's a lot of anger. People are really angry and they don't necessarily tell you that, but they're always angry about something. Um, my patients in particular. They're angry yeah. they can't do what they want to do. They're they feel awful that they're, you know, making their person cut their vegetables for them you know it's it's not what they wanted and and that's a lot to hold on to yeah so um the other thing that we didn't get to talk about so that's visual field loss so that's if you have some sort of stroke or aneurysm along the pathway to on its way to the occipital lobe the other thing that can happen with stroke patients is visual processing disorders so they see okay But they can't interpret what they see, and that's really frustrating for patients. So um, a lot of issues with navigating in space, I just get lost, I can't read a map anymore. Um, Those types of complaints are processing issues um, or visual crowding, which is essentially what the the grocery store complaint is, where it's, you know, I I can't pay attention if there's a lot of stuff, Um, and and that is another issue that we can work on with patients a little bit, at least in awareness, but in, in for some rehab. Um, to get them to be better with spatial concepts again and getting back to it, which is some of its modifications. Like if making things bigger will actually make it less crowded, which is helpful. Um, or just using, my favorite is just masking it, right? Like you can actually put your hands up and make like a little hole, like a telescope to look through. And you'll be amazed if you have visual crowding problems, how much you're like, oh, now I can see things. (laughs) Um, so that's kind of neat too.
2: Like just looking through like, yeah. So I even do like, I do this. So, (laughs) okay. Your,
3: your grocery store complaint. I said this, and this is a podcast. So put my hands up and there's like a small triangle between them. So your, your fingers and your thumbs are touching. Um, if you're looking, let's pretend you're at a grocery store and you're just trying to find something on the shelf and you can't find it. And you know, it is right in front of you. Same thing with like, you lost your keys on the desk. You know, the keys are on the desk, but you just can't find them. If you actually put your hands up and mask all of the peripheral parts, so you're just looking through a very small hole. Um, or you can put your hands up like, um, like you're looking through binoculars. All of a sudden you'll find it because you're eliminating all the excess visual information. So it's less for your brain to have to siphon through. And then boom, there's your keys or like, boom, there's a thing you were looking for. It's like a really s- silly. That's strategy. so
2: funny you say that. I used to try to cut my eyes and be like, no, <laughs> just, this is all I can do. And I felt so silly, but I was just so overwhelmed in the store. Yeah. I didn't realize that was actually like a good coping strategy. It's a
3: great coping. I've yeah. even had people, I tell them to get a ball cap also because ball caps will eliminate the overhead fluorescent lights that – I know Mariah hates. Um, But the ball cap, if you curve it enough, you can create those little win- windows, right? And it's kind of like a, the blinders horses use in racing, right? Like you just keep yourself focused on what you're doing and, and eliminate the excess visual information.
1: Or take an empty uh, toilet paper roll with you to the grocery store. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been living with I mean, a toddler too yeah, too mean, long. <laughs> That's what he it's does. COVID.
2: We all look weird with our masks and everything yeah. on anyway. We might as well just add something and, else. And, they probably and no not recognize, recognize
1: you now. Yeah, right? you're wearing a mask. No one knows. Exactly. They don't, <laughs> don't know who
2: you are. I think at work though, when I start wearing blinders, <laughs> they may, but it might help me.
1: <laughs>
3: I've had patients too. Um, this is a funny with the blinders. So I haven't had this complaint in California. We didn't have this many trees, but Virginia has a ton of trees. And um, the flashing lights through trees when they're driving drives them crazy. And I've, I've been like, you know, just put up some blinders on the side of your sunglasses. And they're like, that was a really easy trick. And I'm like, yeah. Because <laughs> it's just the light coming yeah. in and it's irritating. Yeah. That makes sense. So. Yeah.
2: You're so right. <laughs> so were there any other um, areas that, you know, as for the awareness piece that we should alert people of and – let them know, like, this is when you need to really be pushing for neurooptometry or even just a well-trained optometrist.
3: Yeah. So for me, I think it would just be if you have something that, for me, is a barrier to how you're living and you, you're visually unable to do what you want to do, making sure that you find that doctor that can help you and asking your doctor, like, thank you so much. I always tell them, like, don't get upset with the, the primary care eye doctor. You know, thank you so much for helping me with my eye health. Do you have any resources for people who do and then list out what you need? And maybe they'll be able to reach out to a colleague. Because it's not necessarily that the primary care doctor is doing a bad job. They're doing an excellent eye exam. But what they actually, what the patient actually needs is a brain eye exam, which is a little different. The other one I wanted to plug a little bit, optometry is kind of silly um, in the sense of we have overlapping residencies. And what I mean by that is some people um, do pediatrics and vision therapy and they will still see adults. And so that's a good resource because there's not a lot of neuro optometrists out there. So what do you do if there's not a neuro optometrist by you? Um, well, one is telemedicine's around. So that's been a wonderful boom for us in the last year. So we're a little bit more accessible than we ever were before. Um, but so pediatric vision therapy doctors can be very helpful for people as well as low vision. And so low vision doctors depending on where they got their residency, every residency is a little bit different, but some low vision doctors also have neuro training, especially within the VA. So we have a lot of residencies in the VA system and they do low vision and neuro as a group, meaning that many of their low vision doctors also can do neuro. And so what I usually recommend for people is trying to find the optometrist for you. It's okay to email their office. I've had a number of patients email me with what their complaint is and, and, you know, cause sometimes you actually just have an eyeball problem after a brain injury and they'll email me like, Hey, this is my problem. Should I come see you? And I'll read through their list. I'm like, you really just need a, a general doctor. Like you really don't need to see me. Like you just need new contacts, you know? <laughs> so you don't need to come all the way down to see me for that. Um, and then, and then I'll tell them if you go and that doesn't fix your problem, reach back out. But, but I usually say, you know, try this or, um, I don't specialize as much in low vision cause there's another wonderful low vision doc and uh, in the Richmond area. And I'm a big fan of go to who's best suited for you. And so if a patient emails me their complaint and I'm like, this is more of a very much low vision complaint. You need magnifiers and you need low vision training and orientation and mobility training. That is a low, more low vision specialty. And I will, instead of having them come see me, I'll just kind of shuttle them over to my colleague instead. Um, so I think just emailing the office and saying, Hey, this is what my complaint is. Can you help me? Um, and I think that's a really great way. I know at least for all of my colleagues, we're all happy to answer those emails. We obviously can't answer massive emails quickly, but we're happy to answer those emails to get you in the right direction, um, and make you kind of where you need to go. Yeah.
1: I wonder, is there any research, um, that's been done that says, you know, what percentage of brain injury survivors have, um, vision issues?
3: There is the, um, so it says on average, it depends on the study and the brain injury issue in, so, and they're super variable. So for yeah. instance, visual field loss and stroke, the numbers are 24 to 67%. <laughs> so it's Quite like range. a third to so maybe two thirds. <laughs> yeah. Um, ocular motor in the <laughs> acute stage is about 70 to 80% in the chronic stages about, which for us is past one to three months is about 20 to 30%. So still a pretty good number. Yeah. Um, but like I said, mm. some of them self-resolve all on their own, oftentimes within about four to six weeks. So that's where you can have, you know, acutely 70 to 80% are going to have vision problems. And of those, you know, 70 to 80% are going to get better on their own, don't need yeah. any intervention, but there's a good 20 to 30% that will need intervention. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's just making sure that, yeah, so it's super common, Yeah. Um, but the studies are, are all over the place. Cause it also depends too, right? A lot of the studies are done in vision clinics. And I'm like, well, if you already got referred to a vision clinic, yeah. you're gonna have a vision problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like someone pushed you there. <laughs> yeah. So the other studies need to be done at we need more, and I've always advocated we don't have a lot of neurooptometrists in hospital systems. And we need them more in hospital systems, especially for the patients who are hospitalized in acute care with severe brain injuries, mm-hmm. to quickly screen here are some things that are gonna be barriers. Because one of the problems I've had is that let's say somebody has like a cranial nerve palsy. So there's three cranial nerves that innervate the eye muscles. And so one eye is up and the other one's down um, and we can actually help them with prism. But if they're seeing double while they're in inpatient care and they're doing their physical therapy and their occupational therapy with an eye patch on or seeing double because they're maybe aphasic and can't tell their provider they're seeing double, mm. um, all of the therapy they did isn't going to be as effective as it would be if you know an eye doctor could very quickly put some prism on them so that they can see one um and then do all the therapies that way so if someone really has vision loss it's really important to know right away so that the people doing rehab like pts and ot's can do the appropriate rehab for them so i think getting us in sooner would be very helpful as well yeah and then doing studies on like okay of all the brain injuries who weren't referred for a visual problem just in general were screened for one how many of them actually had vision problems and i think that's a study that hasn't been done appropriately yet
1: yeah it sounds like I mean, I'm going to sound like a crazy person, but it sounds like something that everybody should look into post-brain injury, just it to be able to check the box off and say, okay, yes, this is, or no, it's not an issue. Um, but it doesn't hurt to look into it, you know, just in case yeah. you have symptoms that you, like me and Aaron, you know, like that you're not connecting with it, um, that could be.
2: Well, and that's what I'm wondering. Can we summarize, um, you know, you said 20 to 30% of people have long-term visual visual symptoms, visual deficits. Can you just summarize what some of those things are that we should be looking for?
3: Sure. So as I mentioned before, well, so for, they're different. So one is um, for stroke and acquired brain injury, not being able to interpret what you see or being really frustrated because cognitively you feel like, and again, these may overlap with neuropsych, but not being able to do what you knew you could do before. So I used to be a really good reader. I'm not a good reader anymore. I can't understand or comprehend what I read. Those are important things to maybe get the box checked of whether there's a vision issue on top of that as well. Um, so c- some cognitive complaints compared to, you know, the words move on the page while I'm reading. I lose my place while I'm reading. I get dizzy and nauseous headachey when I read for longer than 10 minutes, which is not normal. Um, you know, you should be able to, to function. Everyone's going to have trouble with Zoom for eight hours, but you should be able to to take a break and get back into it, not take a break and be done for the rest of the day. Um, so the big ones for me are really kind of, you know, as I mentioned, the grocery store, usually vestibular or ocular motor. (laughs) So you can also have anxiety, so psych as well, but, um, usually vestibular or ocular motor with the grocery store. So if you haven't seen, if you've seen vestibular and it's not getting better, you might want to think about ocular motor. Um, a lot of it is just, if your head's not moving and your eyes are moving and you get dizzy and nauseous from that, that definitely, you should get that checked out by someone that can, that can help you with it. And I also love to especially stroke patients, I feel like when you've had a stroke, everyone just tells you what went wrong. Right? So it's like, you've lost this, you've lost that, you've lost this, you've lost that. I kind of love once in a while getting a vision exam and doing a really comprehensive post-stroke exam and telling them like, I looked at everything and your vision is fine. (laughs) And I love those patients because they they kind of light up. They're
2: like, really? Yippee! (laughs) Something's good? (laughs) Yeah. Right? (laughs) Something's right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You get to so good, I
2: think it's also nice spot. to tell people they're normal.
1: Everybody awesome. needs that once in we a while. We love that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: right? We may not agree with you, but yeah, yeah we love to hear it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This has been amazing. I honestly, like, I feel like I learned so, so much in this short period of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, sure. This was kind of an unexpected educational session in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, that's
3: why I saw your podcast and I
1: had seen people like mention things. And I'm like, oh, I really want to have so much to say. <laughs> you know, no, this has been I'm amazing. so happy you reached out I to know. Us. Um, and I feel like such a needed um, hour chat um, for this community, honestly. So, yeah. Um, For our listeners, if you are listening and want to hear more from Jackie, um, she does have a website, virginianeurooptometry.com, and is on Instagram and Facebook at Virginia Neuro, if I could speak English, Virginia Neuro Optometry. And um, always feel free to reach out to us if you have questions that you'd like us to pass on. But Jackie, thank you so, so much for A, doing what you do for this community, and also B, joining us today, because I think uh, this has been. Unbelievably helpful. So, good. Yeah, it was fun for me too. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, thanks for joining us.
1: So, to our listeners, thanks for following us. We will talk to you all next week. This is Mariah signing off with my co host, Aaron. Hey everyone. In case you're wondering what Aaron and I do for a living, it's not podcasting. I work in marketing, Aaron's a nurse, and this is just a side project that we love.
2: We really do enjoy doing this and we've enjoyed being part of the community and building up a group of listeners. You guys probably don't even realize how much you help us out uh, just by supporting us. If you were looking to do a little bit extra, uh, we would love to have your ratings on Apple or whichever podcasting service that you use.
1: Or if you hear us talk about a product on the podcast, we do include those links to Amazon in our show notes on our website. Your purchase after you click on the link just gives us a tiny little kickback. Nothing much, but it helps us pay our bills.
2: And if you are thinking, well, this isn't enough, we want to do a little bit more, on our website at www.makingheadwaypodcast.com, we have a donation page. Any proceeds we receive, we give 10% to our favorite brain injury nonprofit of the moment. So if you are looking to do a little bit more, that would be a great way to support us. Again, we appreciate you guys oh so much.
1: Thanks so much for your time and your ongoing support. We love our listeners and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your health care provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stoutheart Studios. Sunrises across the ocean